Welcome to the Upper Room Podcast. Thank you so much for stopping by. I'm Pastor Carl McLaughlin from Calvary Pentecostal Church in Euless, Texas. We're located in Dallas-Fort Worth, where 8 million call DFW home. Whether you're tuning in to Sunday or Wednesday's message, we pray that you will find words of encouragement. It is our mission to provide a positive and encouraging voice in the midst of uncertainty. I pray that you will be blessed by today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Upper Room Podcast. We are so, so happy you've decided to listen today. This Sunday, we heard from Brother Hughes. He spoke a message entitled, The Gift of the Holy Ghost. It was such a powerful word. We hope you're encouraged today. John 4, 4. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the parcel ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour, or noon. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me to drink. For his disciples had gone to the city to buy provisions. Then said the woman of Samaria to him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, Ask a drink of me, who am a woman of Samaria, for the Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. For a few moments today, I, I want to speak to you from the subject, the gift of the Holy Ghost. The gift of the Holy Ghost. Lord bless you, you may be seated. Before I begin today, uh, let me say how honored I am to be able to be with Brother and Sister Benson. We have known each other a long time. 1969. <laughs> That's 53 years. What an honor to be here with Brother and Sister Benson. I, I, I can say something to you that you can't say. I have watched this couple for 53 years. They're still the same today as they were 53 years ago. Some of the kindest, sweetest, gentlest people you'll ever meet. And it's an honor. It is an incredible honor to be here today. I, I stand here amazed at what God has done for you because I remember the beginning. I think it was 1969 that that started. And what a great work God has done here for all of you. And I agree with your pastor. Great revival is coming. The reason I know that is because if the first one happened, then the second one has to. Because the same book that prophesied the first one prophesied the last one. <laughs> 
but there's a little bit of difference. He began by saying, in, the, in that day he shall pour out the former rain. And that rain fell on Pentecost. But in the last days, he will pour out the former and the latter rain together. And the latter rain shall be seven times greater than the former rain. So what's going to happen here at the end of time is that it will be at least 18 times greater or eight times greater than what happened on the day of Pentecost. So if there were 3,000 that day, there's got to happen at least 8,000. And everything you saw happening in that first church is going to happen eight times greater because that's the prophecy that produced the first one. So if it could produce the first one, we know the next one's going to happen. If we would simply discover who we are. I, I've noticed traveling, I've been doing this for 38 years, and I, I've noticed over the 38 years of traveling that God's children have almost gotten to a state of confusion. What we're we're sometimes wondering why we're here, how we got here. I know that I was convinced as a teenager in youth camp in 1967 that I'd never lived long enough to get married because when Israel took back Jerusalem, within seven years, it was all over. That didn't happen. And then... Everybody were preaching that it would happen before 1980. And then a little white book circulated among Pentecostals that sold 4 million copies. The guy got four bucks a piece for them. So the easy math is $16 million. It might have cost him $100,000 to print them at the most because they printed on newspaper, recycled newspaper with a slick white cover and red letters. 88 reasons why the Lord's coming in 1988. The church I attended at that time had 500 backsliders pray through in the month of August. 500 came back to church. 500. The book prophesied that by the year of September of that year that the Lord would come. But he didn't. By December, there was one left out of 500. We will never know the day or hour because if we did, we'd do exactly what all those folks did. We'd wait till the last minute, live however we wanted, and then at the last moment, we'd correct our lives so that we'd make sure we'd make it. That's why nobody knows. Then Y2K, we were terrified computers are going to fail. And, and now we're here and and, and we're wondering how all this takes place, how it happens. And somehow in, in all the process, I, I remember back as a teenager, my late middle, middle to late teens here in the North Texas area, that we, we were influenced by some incredible preachers. Two of them are, are no longer part of us, but they so believed the Lord was coming that they started screaming to us 
that you don't have time to teach. The Lord's coming. Every service has to be revival. Wednesday night has to be revival. Sunday morning has to be revival. Sunday night has to be revival. And as a result, we've raised three generations don't have a clue what the Bible says. We come to church to feel something, get a high, but we don't have a clue what it's all about or, or how to walk or how to live. And, and, and we're, we're, we're kind of confused over whether or not I have all the resources necessary to do what God equipped me to do. God didn't save me to just barely exist. Jesus declared, I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. Jesus did not come for you just to get by. He came to give you life greater than your mind's ability to even imagine. He came to give you life exceedingly, abundantly, above all we may ask or think. His desire is that I become the vessel of honor he created me to be. The psalmist said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalms 139. I am fearfully and wonderfully created. David said, God created me and in my mother's womb, when I was made in darkness, you wrote in your book all my members when as yet there was none of them. The only time that exists is at the instant of conception. Within just a short period of time, one cell becomes two, then four, then eight, then 16, then 32, then 64, then 128, then 256, then 512. It just keeps doubling from that point and you no longer are without form. At the instant of conception, God took a book out and wrote every detail of your life from the cradle to the grave. God's not shocked at what you look like or how tall you are. God chose the chromosomes that made you. Out of the billions of possibilities, the only way you can be created is that he decided which of those chromosomes came together to make you the way you are. Has anybody ever heard God say, oops? God don't make mistakes. He doesn't mess things up. Your life is not a mistake. All God desires is you discover all of those things that he put inside of you and then learn how to use them for his glory and his kingdom. He just wants us to discover our talents, our abilities, and then start using them in the world I live in. And the instant I do, it starts bringing glory to him because that's who put it there. Jesus, John chapter 4, goes to Samaria. Yesterday or Friday, I, I, I referred to the gospel of John because I've been on about... 10-year journey here and still haven't found all the stuff that's there. I was reading this passage of Scripture the week after Christmas about 10 years ago. And as I was reading it, I, I, I noticed a phrase that just didn't need to be there. It doesn't add a whole lot to the story, 
Jesus didn't say it. These are the words of the writer that observed what happened. And it simply says he must needs go through Samaria. John recognized at the end of his life that trip to Samaria was one of the most important things Jesus did in his ministry. After spending some six weeks at Jordan and, and after being tempted and caught away in the wilderness for 40 days, returning and, and gathering disciples, he starts home. Now, to get to Jerusalem or to, to Judea or Galilee, Nazareth, where he had grown up, the easiest path would have been straight up the Jordan Valley. But Jesus knew a lady would be at a well on a particular day at a particular time. And he made those disciples get up early enough in the morning that he could take them there. And when they arrived, he would dismiss them to go get a meal. Now, when is it taking 12 men to buy lunch? Jesus did not want anybody there when he had a conversation with this lady. Why? Because they would not have let him have the conversation. They would have seen her as unclean. She wouldn't fit for him to spend time with. She's a Samaritan. You don't need to spend time with this lady. And they would have put up such a, a, a ruckus that he would have not been able to say anything to her. So he sent them away. And here comes this lady. He knew what time she'd be there, and he sat down. He's not, the Bible says, or the King James says, he sat on the well. The literal translation means he sat on the ground. That, that well had no, no rim to it. That well came when Jacob came back from Laban's house. He had been promised a birthright. He had received a blessing, but he had nothing to show that he inherited anything God said he was supposed to. So getting back from Laban's house, he buys a piece of property from the Canaanites and he dug a well, and that's called Jacob's well. That well never encountered water. It is 100 plus feet deep, 10 foot wide, but there is no free flowing water that it encountered. It should have, but it didn't. Where it's located, it should have been deep enough that the waters from the Mediterranean Sea could have filtered through the rocks and wound up filling it up, but it didn't. So he simply left it and he took the lid off or, or the, the rim off so that when the rain came during the former and latter rains of the year, that the water flowing down off the mountains would flow into this and fill it up and it would whole water so that they could feed their livestock. It was never meant for human consumption because it had little bugs in it. And if you drank it, you'd have gotten really, really sick. But Jesus came to this well, knew this lady was being forced to come there on a regular basis to get water. For her family to drink this water, she'd have to boil it. Now, it's real easy for you and I to make this lady out to be a, 
an immoral lady, that, that she was an outcast. But the fact is, she was none of those things. In Jesus' day, according to historians, men did not measure their age by how old they were. They measured their age by the number of wives they had. A man would never say, I'm 55 years old. He'd say, I'm 16 wives old or 18 wives old. Bragged about the number of times he had been married and divorced. All it required for a divorce was simply to tell her he didn't want her anymore, write a little note to her father, give her her dowry back, send her back home, and it was over. Now dad had to find somebody else to take her. There had been five men that had thrown her away and said, I don't want her, uh, I'm tired of her, uh, she doesn't please me. A woman had no right of divorce in biblical days. A man could divorce her for any reason. She burnt the toast. Bacon's not correct. Well, they didn't eat bacon, they, that's pork. <laughs> Whatever, houses not clean. Any reason, he could send her home. This lady had been thrown away over and over and over again. This lady represents every human being sitting in this room today. This lady represents the broken, the outcast, the bruised of life. Those whose hearts have been wrecked and lives have been shattered by behaviors of people around them. And when she starts approaching, she recognizes him. Now she calls him a rabbi, but Jesus never told her he was a rabbi and no one around could tell her he was a rabbi. So the question is, how did she know he was a rabbi? Well, there's only one way. It was because the way he was dressed. His clothing let them know or her know that he's a rabbi, he's a teacher. And he says to the lady, lady, woman, would you give me something to drink? And she immediately responds, she thinks he has an ulterior motive. Why are you asking me to drink. I'm a Samaritan, first of all, and you know that because of where you're at. You know I'm a Samaritan. So why are you asking me to drink? Are, are you here just to make fun of me like everybody else does? And Jesus says to her, lady, woman, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you would ask of him and he would give you living water. He would give you the gift of God. That word gift from the original text is doria. Doria is a Greek term that can only be used of deity, not humanity. You can never say or use the term in reference to human beings. So no one could ever use that term in my life that I gave a gift, a doria, to someone else. It can only be used of God giving a gift to man. When men give gifts, there's a price involved. For you to give somebody a gift, you have to either work and make money and go buy it, or you have to take your time to build it. Whichever you do, it's... It costs you. It costs time 
or cost money, one of the two. Gifts cost. But a doria has no cost involved. It, it's not given to you because someone paid a price to give it. It's given to you because whoever's giving it away owns it and has the authority and power to do it without any connection that would make you feel obligated or controlled because of a price you might think it belonged or cost. So he said, I'm going to give you a gift. And if you knew what it was, you'd ask of me and I would give you this gift and you'd never, never thirst again. Why is this well so important? Well, it wasn't just the place where Jacob dug the well, but it's in the valley between two mountains, Ebal, Gerizim. When Israel came back from Egypt and crossed Jordan and finally conquered several cities and they came to this area where they set the Ark of the Covenant up or the tabernacle, this was the resting place. It's also called Shiloh and other places. On this mountain, is where they erected the tabernacle and it stayed there until Eli's sons took the ark into battle and lost the ark of the covenant and then the Philistines came and marched on that mountain and destroyed the original tabernacle and it no longer existed. It was here that Israel divided into two groups, six tribes on one mountain, six tribes on the other mountain. And for a day's time, they would read the law and the blessing of the laws that God had gave them, and then the other side would read the curse that would happen if you did not fulfill it. This is their place of commitment and covenant relationship. So Jesus shows up at this well and said, Jacob showed up here, and he said, this belongs to me. I'm staking out my territory Jesus showed up and said, here's where I come to stake out what belongs to me. I have come to redeem and save everything that man has destroyed. I have come to give you life better or bigger than you could possibly imagine or conceive. He didn't just give you the Holy Ghost to get by. He gave you this incredible gift that if we ever truly learn how to live in it and use it correctly, it changes the atmosphere and the conditions that are around us. The little lady becomes quite intrigued by his statement and she said, I, 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 want, I want that drink. And Jesus then requires that she bring her husband now she recognizes there's a problem, so she said, I don't have one. And Jesus responded to her, that is correct. The one you're living with now is not your husband, but you have lived with five before. And instantly, she's not offended. She perceives he's more than a rabbi. This man knows her past and her life. How did he know that? How did he know all these details? And so she lets her guard down. And, and instantly she wants to know, you in Jerusalem say that's where you have to worship. We say we worship at the top of this mountain right here beside us called Gerizim. Where do I worship at? And Jesus declared to that lady that the day cometh and now is 
when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father seeketh such. You don't have to beg God or, or entreat God. Jesus declared that the day you call his name and you cry out to him, he starts a journey to find you. He's gonna locate you. You don't have to locate him. All you've got to do, the day cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and the Father seeketh such. Ladies and gentlemen, the fact is tonight you are as spiritual as you want to be. You're as close to God as you want to be. The only reason you're not more spiritual or closer is we don't want the responsibility that goes with getting closer to him. Because the closer you get to him, the more of you that gets revealed. His word is a sharp two-edged sword. It cuts on both sides. When you pick it up, it was intended for you to lay it down bloody. It will expose you. We have problems when something confronts us and forces us to examine our lives and ourselves. It causes us a lot of issues when we have to be truly honest with who we are. But that lady wasn't offended. She said, I want that, whatever it is. He said, the day coming now is when true, and that word truth that's used there or true that's used there has three definitions or three parts to the definition. It literally translates not only having the name and the appearance, but the nature. You can't just look like him and carry his name. For worship to be true, you gotta act like him. You gotta start living your life like he does. You gotta get close enough to him that you disappear and he shows up and what people see in you is not you, but they start seeing the Jesus that lives inside of you and, and they start understanding there's a difference in your life because you, you're able to handle things that I don't know anybody else that can handle those kind of problems that are happening in life. Then he said, you're gonna do it in spirit and in truth. The word spirit is a little s. It's not capital. It's not referring to the Holy Ghost. It's referring to your human spirit. And there's only two scriptures in the Bible that address the human spirit. One's found in Proverbs. It says the spirit of a man is the candle of the Lord searching the inward parts of the belly. The other is found in Corinthians when Paul said nobody knows the man but the spirit of the man. Your spirit is your conscience. The day's gonna come when you truly worship God. If you're gonna do it correctly, you're gonna have to engage your conscience in your worship. And when you engage your conscience, it gives God a platform to start talking to you and speaking to you. You wanna know where God speaks and what you hear? That conscience you have inside of you is the voice of God. It's God putting in you the ability to say things to you and direct you and lead you by the spirit that's living inside of you. 
Bible says that she then left her water pot. That water pot represented her past, her life. She wasn't accepted in town. She had to come here. That water pot, it represented every hurt, every disappointment, every failure that had happened in her life up to that point. But she felt so comfortable in the presence of Jesus that she left him with the stigma of her life and she went back to town without that stigma. God don't need your testimony. God needs you to reflect him. You need to leave your past at his feet. When you leave your past at his feet, then it allows him to shine through you because there's a safe place to leave it where nobody can come and find out what happened or what's there or what you've done or where you've been. No one has the ability to do that because he will make sure that that water pot never leaves his presence. Then all of a sudden, here comes 12 men back from town and they see Jesus with the woman and they get a little anxious and they think among themselves. Notice the way John wrote it. He didn't say Jesus knew their thoughts. They started reasoning among themselves. What's he doing talking? He's going to ruin his testimony. He's talking to a woman. There are a group of Pharisees in Jesus' day called the bleeding Pharisees. They got their name from the fact that they wouldn't look on a woman. If a woman started to approach, they just closed their eyes and kept walking. They walked into trees, buildings, ditches. They wound up with scars and cuts, blood coming from different places, and they wore that with a badge of honor. We would never look at a woman. What are you doing, Jesus? You're giving us a bad name. What, you, people are going to laugh at us. They're going to mock us. What, what are you doing, Jesus? And Jesus said, look at the harvest. He gave the lady enough time to get back to town because she didn't have a water pot. Her testimony changed. And she brought the whole scripture set. All. That's not part. All the city came out to see him. Why? Because Jesus had offered her a gift. We don't find that word again until the day of Pentecost. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the doria of the Holy Ghost. For Peter to preach Acts 2.38, Jesus forced him to ask that woman what Jesus said. Peter never heard Jesus make those statements. That lady at the well heard that, and Peter had to go sit down with that lady that they were going to laugh at and mock and make fun of. And, and she was going to give him the message. He could stand up on the day of Pentecost 
and begin to preach. Gift of the Holy Ghost. You know, we, we don't really appreciate gifts. Most of the things people give us, we sell in garage sales or we take back the day after Christmas. God said, I, I'm going to give you something that if you ever learn how to use it, it will transform. I'm going to give you a gift that you can take with you every day of your life. It's going to go with you through conditions and, and circumstances of life that, that you can't even comprehend. It, it will help you get through some of the most dark places in your life. A gift. Several years ago, I was at camp meeting back when, before all the district division took place. We're in Lufkin, probably middle 90s. At the end of service, we were all around the platform praying, and I felt someone tap me on the shoulder. I look, and it's a pastor in my city. And he says, can I talk to you? I said, sure. So we walked around beside that big platform with that huge tall wall and over to the corner, he, he said, Brother Hughes, uh, I, I just, I felt I need to talk to you. I got a family in my church that's got some real problems and I don't know how to help them. What would you, would you mind speaking to them? And I said, no, Brother McLean, I, I wouldn't mind, sure, I'd love to. So a few days later, I get a phone call, and I didn't recognize the number. The voice said, my pastor gave me your name, told me to call you. He said, you agreed to talk to my wife and I. I said, sure. So I set it up Tuesday night, later in August or July. We went to the church office, and when the couple walked in, I, I was quite taken back by the difference between the two. He's about 6'2", six 6'3". Six he has about a 24-inch neck. He's at least three foot across the shoulders. He probably weighs 350 pounds. He's just, he's just huge man walked through that door, massive. He wasn't. Oh, he, he might have had a little bit of fat on him, but I doubt it was a whole lot. I mean, he's just this big dude that walks through this door. And this little lady's not even five foot tall. She wouldn't weigh 90 pounds dripping wet. This tiny little lady beside Paul Bunyan. <laughs> and I, 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 I invited him to sit down. He sat in front of me, and she sat beside him. And as I'm starting a conversation with her, I, I notice her chair starts moving. And it just keeps moving. And it keeps moving. Not, not a whole lot one time, but it's just a little bit at a time. And in about 15 minutes, she's disappeared. I can't even see her. The desk I'm sitting at had a bookcase on the cadenza on the side. And it went almost to the ceiling. And she slid in that little hole. And I can't see her at all. I can hear her, but I can't see her. When we got through that evening, 
he said, um, could we do this again? I said, sure. He said, but next time you probably ought to speak to us separately. I said, okay. Uh, you probably know what's best, so okay. So next week they came back, and he comes in, sits down. He said, Brother Hughes, when I tell you about my wife, you're not going to believe me. I've had a little bit of a difficulty myself believing her story. But my wife grew up in a backslidden Pentecostal home where mom and dad both had the Holy Ghost at one time and backslid. Dad become a drunk. And when dad gets drunk, he becomes a very vile, evil man. There are seven children in the family. There are photo albums of every child with pictures that document everything they've ever been through in their life. The day he abuses them, he keeps the camera ready. It's photo stamped with a date and year. Every child can flip that album open and start from their birth until his death. It's all right there. She brought it in one day and showed it to me. It took almost six months for her to trust me enough to even start telling me a little bit about her life. I was quite taken back by what I heard. I, I, I don't understand some of these things that parents do. I, I have great parents. So I, I didn't study psychology because I come from a bad family and I'm trying to figure out what went on in my life. My pastor asked me to do it and I did it. That's the only reason. I'm a structural engineer. I'd rather do the other stuff than this. But, so, she said, Brother Hughes, I need to tell you some stories. It's okay, but I, I don't want any details. She said, I don't have to tell details. It's okay. So she started telling me about her life. Her abuse started at six weeks. Six weeks. Dad come home drunk. Wife is nursing a child. He yanks the child out of mom's hands, screaming, you love her more than you do me. Beat mother. Broke her jaw. Cocked a pistol, shoved it down the throat of this infant. Six weeks old. The sight ripped the top of her mouth open. Screaming, I'm going to kill her. The mom begs. He finally quit. But he didn't quit. He cleaned her up, cleaned the baby up. One guy's camera took a picture. So there's a picture of this little infant laying beside a mother. She's not holding it. It's laying beside mother. Mother sitting on a, on a vinyl couch with no arms on the end, with her hands on her knees staring straight ahead, and her jaw is hanging over to the right. It's obvious it's broke. 
I don't know what he told the hospital that he took her to to wire it back together, but he came up with some story because they never investigated. That was the beginning of her abuse that happened to all seven kids on a regular basis. One of the daughters had a child by him that was so deformed it had to be put in an institution and that daughter lost her mind and is in the same institution with the child she had with all these horrible birth defects. She said, Brother Hughes, it was so horrible. I, I, I just didn't think I would ever survive. At six years of age, the local church began to send a Sunday school bus by her home, ask her mom and dad if, if they could bring the children to Sunday school, and mom and dad agreed without a problem. And so nine or seven children would get on that Sunday school bus and they'd ride it. She was the only one who kept going. The rest of them quit over a period of time because it just wasn't anything they wanted to do, but she kept going. At 12 years of age in a Sunday school class, the teacher was teaching about the Holy Ghost. And she said to her teacher, is this gift you're talking about for everybody? Oh, yes. Can I have it? Yes. Well, I want it. Okay. Now. The teacher didn't get concerned. She said, okay, honey. If you'll just raise your hands and start praising the Lord, you have to repent first, but you're only six, so probably don't have a whole lot to repent about. Tell the Lord you're sorry for any sin you committed, and you'll get the Holy Ghost. And within just a matter of moments, she's speaking in tongues. She goes home that day and tells mom and dad, I got the Holy Ghost. And mom said, and there's no child of mine going to Pentecostal. She hated Pentecost so bad because of him, because that's what he came out of. That, that none of her kids, she, you're not going back. And dad said, you don't control what happens at this house. I'm in charge here. And if she won't go to church, she can go to church. And there's nothing you're going to do about it. So the preacher, not Sunday school teacher, the pastor picked her up that night, took her to church, and she was baptized at 12 years of age. She said, Brother Hughes, the Lord and church was my escape. I'd beg them to take me home last because as long as I was on that bus, I knew I was safe. As long as I was at church, I knew I was safe. Nothing bad was going to happen. But at 16, I came home from church on a Sunday night, and Dad was drunk. And he was in his rage, and he started beating me when I came in the front door. He beat me unconscious grabbed me by the hair of the head and beat my face against the telephone, screaming, called the preacher, see if God can help you now. Broke the telephone. She said, my face was so distorted from being beaten that it took almost two weeks before the swelling would go down enough that I could even go back to school. He said, you're never going back to that church again. She called her pastor the next day, said, pastor, dad says I can't come back to church. He said, okay, that's not a problem. The Bible says obey your parents, so you need to obey your dad. She said, okay, but I really need church. He said, I understand. She said, Brother Hughes, it got so bad in my life 
There were days I didn't even think I would survive. She said, one day, it was so bad at my house that I said, Jesus, if you're real and you know where I'm at and you know what's going on in my life, please let me know. Show me somehow that you understand where I'm at and what's happening to me. She said, I went to sleep that night at about 2 o'clock in the morning. I awoke. I knew something was in my room, and I was terrified. And then I heard a voice say, be not afraid. It is I. She said, the lights come on in my room. And there stood the Lord Jesus with two angels. And the Lord said, this room is soundproof. Nobody in this house is going to know what happens in this room right now. You can do whatever you want. This room is soundproof and nobody here. She said, Brother Hughes, I jumped out of that bed. 16 years of age, I grabbed two angels by the hand and we danced in the presence. <laughs> we danced in the presence of Jesus. Till I was exhausted, I went back to sleep. She said, Brother Hughes, do you think that happened? Or is that my mind? I said, honey, if the Lord could pick up Stephen and transport him through space and put him down beside a road for the Ethiopian eunuch to encounter, God could send an angel to your house and come to your house just as he hadn't changed. He's done incredible things in the past. Yes, I believe you. She said that happened twice. Her senior year in high school, she had already finished all her coursework. She was valedictorian of a large high school where she graduated. She got a job working for the judge, making sure his house was kept. She bought his groceries, made sure everything ran at his house. He come in, she, she came to his house one day right before graduation and he said, uh, if you could go to college, what would you like to study? She said, oh, I'm not going to college because dad said you'll never escape your mind and you'll never get out of this house. She said, oh, you know, I, I'm not sure. I haven't made up my mind. Valedictorian. And the judge kept pushing, and, and, but she would just push him off. And graduated through the summer, kept working, and she got there one day, and there were several sheriff's cars in the driveway, which wasn't uncommon. He's judge. Walked in, and the judge was sitting at a large dining room table. He said, come here. And she walked in the room. He said, I, I, I've talked to the the president of Ole Miss, and he's given me permission to register you in college. You have a full scholarship. You won't have to pay a penny for your education. Your room board's paid for. We'll actually give you money to live on each month. All you need to do is go to school and become whatever you desire to be. She said, oh, I can't do that. She said, oh, yes, we can. Just, just fill out the paperwork. So she filled out the paperwork. Knowing she's not going anywhere. A few weeks later, she comes back, and those cars are still, or same cars are there, and she walks in. And the judge says, Okay, 
it's time to go to school. She, oh, I can't do that. Oh, yes, you can. Follow these men. So the sheriff took her and put her in the back seat of his car. Other deputies fell in beside him, and they drove to her house. The sheriff walked up the front door, took his nightstick, and rapped on the front door, and when Dad appears, he just rapped on Dad's head a couple of times gently and stuck that stick in his chest and shoved him back in the house and said, Sit down. And two deputies stood on either side. The other deputies took her to a room, and they loaded all of her clothes in a paper bag, took it out and put it in the sheriff's car, and took her to Ole Miss and registered her at college that day. On the way out, the sheriff said to Dad, gently reminding him with a little rap on his forehead, Sir, if I ever hear you've ever done anything else to this little lady, your life is over. Do you understand what I'm telling you? I can bury you where no one would ever know you even died. So if you, do you understand what I'm telling you? And she escaped. She hadn't been to church in three years. When she got to college, she tried to, she went to church. She didn't know where to go. She didn't know what church to find. So she got the phone book out, Yellow Pages, when they existed, and, and she started going through all the churches in the Yellow Pages. She started with A, United is a long way down that list. Finally, she got to United Pentecostal Church and showed up there on a Wednesday night. And when she walked in, she said, oh, this is it. I, I know this is where, this is what I had before. And she said, those people thought I was nuts. They didn't even have to sing a song, and I was out running the aisles and shouting and worshiping. I'd been without the ability to go to church for three years, and no one had to encourage me to worship or, or to magnify God. I, I just... If you just talked about his name, I was on my feet worshiping God. The last three years or two years of her high school, the pastor gave her a key to the church. On Friday, she'd walk a couple of miles from church, school to church and clean it. He said, I talked to the pastor and he confirmed all this story. Actually, he, he became part of foreign missions and he, he I said did this happen yes I remember her very well he said I, I had you could eat off the floors of my church it was so clean she kept my church cleaner than it has ever been in its history but once she got through cleaning the church she'd go get a bible and just stand behind the pulpit and read it and then she'd go down and stand in front of the altar and worship by herself then go back to school She had all kinds of problems. When children are abused horribly as early young children before the age of six, they develop survival instincts that only allow them to cope. And stuff gets buried. On a Tuesday night, she comes in, sits down. He's sitting through the glass doors. I can see him out in the, the vestibule. I start talking to her, and a little voice starts talking to me. Terrified me. 
made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Please, don't tear my house down. Please, please, don't tear my house down. So I'm not going to tear your house down. Please, I'm, I'm begging you, don't tear my house down. But I'm, I'm not going to tear your house down. Please. And then my education kicked in. I, there's some stuff I learned I didn't believe. It, it kicked in. I thought, I don't know what your problem is. And the adult showed back up. She said, what? I told her. She said, yeah, but people think I'm possessed. So they keep trying to cast the devil out. It wasn't the devil. It was just a coping mechanism the kid developed to handle abuse that the kid couldn't understand. Next week she came back. She said, I was praying. Her pastor said, if that lady ever tells you God said something, you write it down in concrete. You etch it in stone. It will come to pass. She don't prophesy and miss like most of us do. She said, the Lord said, the answer to my problems found in Romans chapter 8. It's okay. So I went home, read Romans 8, reread Romans 8, read Romans 8, reread Romans 8. I couldn't find the answer nowhere. I knew what she'd said, so I thought, you know what? I'm going to translate it. I went and got my Greek text, sat out at my dining room table. My wife came in and said, what are you doing? And I said, I, I, I'm going to translate the eighth chapter of Romans. She said, okay, you need it to be quiet. I said, that would help. So she said, okay, I'll take the kids. And I think they got in a car and went somewhere. And so I'm sitting here at my dining room table, and I start in Romans 8, chapter 1, verse 1. As I'm, I'm translating, I realize that the pronouns are, are plural. But you do no injustice to any book in the Bible to make it personal. You're not changing the scripture if you put personal pronouns in place and read it as if God wrote it straight to you. It was intended to be written straight to everybody. Knows. The book of Ephesians didn't even have a title. It had a blank space. And over the side, it had Ephesus written beside it. But every church that read it was supposed to put their name in the blank. It was written to the whole church, the, the whole group of believers. It was written to each one. Every book in that New Testament was written to all of us. Read it as if it's written for you. And it's your own personal letter God wrote to you. So as I began to read it, I found the answer. Verse 25, 26, 27. Is it possible to put it up on the screen? Likewise, Spirit helpeth our infirmities. When I know not what I should pray as I ought, Spirit maketh intercession for me with groanings and utterances. When, when, when I know not what I, it says Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we change them. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth my infirmities. That word infirmity means any kind of, of, of issue, lack of, it can be disease. It doesn't matter what it is. 
It's a weakness that you can't overcome that you need help with. The Holy Ghost is God's answer to heal us. Praying in the Holy Ghost, allowing God's words to flow through us, equips us with the, the, the means or, or the resource to bring healing no matter what life is. She's coming back the next week. I said, here's the, what I discovered. If you will pray in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost will help heal your mind so that all this stuff tormenting you will disappear. Her face lit up like a light. She said, oh, I've been doing that all my life. Just didn't know what I was doing. I'll fix this tomorrow. <laughs> I'll hire a babysitter. I'll go to church. I don't care how long it takes. Next week, she came back, walked in the door, said, I did it. You did? Yep, did what you said. Hired a babysitter, went to church. I started praying. And I started praying. I didn't know what to pray, so I let the Holy Ghost. I said, Jesus, you know what I need to pray. I don't have a clue. But your spirit knows the mind of God, and you know the will of God, so you know what needs to happen in my life. So I just yield you my body, my lips, my voice, and you pray. So when I got through, my whole brain was put back in order. There's no gaps. There's no dead spaces. There, there, there's no parts of me I can't remember because Jesus said, I'm going to give you a gift. And that gift has the power to help you heal for whatever life may produce. About a year and a half ago, I was on an airplane. Maybe it's been two years. And I, I was headed home, flipped my laptop open, and, and I, I needed to send someone an email. And the news popped up because that's my web page is news, Fox News. So I, and... and there was a little article at the bottom just caught my attention. I thought, I don't need to read this. So I downloaded it, closed my computer, got on a plane, and I think I was coming from Memphis back to Houston. It may have been Nashville back to Houston. I opened my computer on the plane. I started reading this article. And the article said, scientists have discovered how sound and vibration can alter human DNA. Well, it was this long research paper that had been written and had all kinds of footnotes and, and bibliography and places you can trace. To, and so I, I just went through it and discovered some incredible things. Our bodies only use 10% of our DNA. 90% American doctors call junk. Not even necessary. But doctors in other countries thought, why would any of it be junk? There's got to be a reason for all of it. So they began to study it and discovered that DNA has the ability to communicate. They can take a queen ant out of an ant colony, take her halfway around the world, as long as she's alive and well that ant colony stays active and working. The instant she dies, the colony disappears. They don't die. They just leave. They find another colony to be part of. The only way that can happen is through DNA. And they discovered that the vibration that affects DNA is 536 megahertz. Now, I don't know how to play that. Uh, 
But somewhere on that keyboard, there's a middle C. And the old ones, it was usually right above where the lettering was on the front, so you could find it real easy. <laughs> that, <laughs> if you go seven notes past, you come to another C. That's not middle C. I don't even know what C it is, but it's the next one down the, the, the keyboard. What C is it? Whatever it is. That is 536 megahertz. All of nature sings at 536 megahertz. God created the world and put us in that he put all kinds of stuff in it that heal us if we just listen to it. The birds singing, sing in the key of C. Everything that happens in our world happens to 536 megahertz. They also discovered that sounds, words, can damage it. They put DNA in a fluid, had people come into a room, scream and, and, and curse each other and say horrible things to each other, examine the DNA and it's damaged. They could put it back in a fluid, put it in a room, bring people in to say words of kindness, affirmation, love, and it would heal itself. And the Bible says, in the tongue, life and death are in the power of the tongue. James says the tongue is a fire from hell. It leaves scorched. It, it can be unruly. But God said, I'm going to give you a gift. If you'll let me control it, I can use that tongue to produce sounds and vibrations necessary to bring all kinds of things into existence just by you allowing me to pray through. You don't know what you need to pray, but the Spirit does. You, you don't know the mind of God, but the Spirit does. And if I just learn how to start praying in the Holy Ghost, then I would have the ability to see all kinds of things take place in life. They also discovered that a Gregorian chant heals DNA eight to nine times quicker than anything else. A Gregorian chant is from the Catholic Church. I saw it on the screen in an airport eight or nine years ago when the Pope died and they were electing new Pope and they were going through his burial. A Gregorian chant is a baritone voice singing the word of God. This guy who was ever on the screen in the airport was singing from the book of Mark and you could read the scripture and hear him sing it if you just listen. There was the most beautiful sound I ever heard in my life. But if you take the word of God and put it to music, it will heal people's lives eight to nine times faster than anything else. Only eternity is going to define what happened to some of your children while in your womb that you brought to church and the preached word of God and the music that was sung was able to penetrate and to affect an unborn child and correct the defect that, that we won't ever. 
We will find out in eternity, but we'll never know the effect of a church service on a child's life from the beginning of his life, from the instant of conception until his birth and then through the rest of his life. You see, he said, I, I'm gonna give you a gift that if you'd ever learn to use it, it'll change lives. I had to have back surgery about three years ago and had to miss traveling one weekend. So I was at church. I had a ruptured disc that blew outside. They were able to go and shave it off without a whole lot of other issues as a result. But I was at church that Sunday morning and my brother stepped in the pulpit and said, we have one of our saints here today. She has stage four cancer and they give her no hope of living. Her husband called last night and said, we have called our friends all over America. His dad was one of the pioneers to the state of Oklahoma that, that built many churches in that state. Grew up in a preacher's home. He wasn't a preacher, but he grew up in a preacher's home. He said, we've had churches all over the world pray for her, but the Lord reminded me last night that the scripture says, if there's any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church. We call you to prayer, and God said, no, it don't work that way. If you won't heal, you're going to have to ask us to pray for you. That's what the book said. Am I out of the book? So, he said, the Lord said, the elders need to anoint her with oil. So he just motioned at me. I walked up. He took that bottle of oil, which was a lot smaller than this one. I'm going to drop that one. <laughs> Slick. <laughs> She's sitting on the back row. She's about 5'8", tall lady, but might have weighed 90 pounds. She was great. She had no color. Her tumors were so large you could see them through the skin. Three of them. I said, all right, Jesus, I want to know something. I, I want to see if this is real. If this is the way you created it and it works, I want to watch it. I yield you my voice and my vocal cords. Whatever sound needs to come out to heal whatever's happening in her life, I want to watch it happen. When I walked up, I couldn't even lay my hand on her, and the Holy Ghost just burst out. When it got through, I quit. I walked away. Nothing happened. She went home, prayed. The next Friday or Saturday, the first tumor disappeared. The next Saturday, the next tumor disappeared. By the next Saturday, the last one had disappeared. She, he took her back to the doctor. The doctor said her body is totally cancer-free right now. Why? Because I'm going to give you a gift. And if you're not afraid to use it wherever you're at 
or whatever conditions are around you, if you'll just let the Holy Ghost flow through you, it knows what to say. It knows the sound and vibrations necessary to bring healing to whatever is around because it's the gift of God to us. Parents, whoever has your DNA, you can affect. You can pray for people that don't even have to be here because they can be halfway around the world. And your DNA, when you allow the Holy Ghost to pray through you, if we'd start spending more time in intercessory prayer and praying in the Holy Ghost, we would be amazed at what starts happening around us in our communities and in people's lives in the church as a result of you and I just learning how to pray in the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is here today. When the day of Pentecost was fully come. They were all in one place in one accord. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind. It filled all the house where they were sitting. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire and it sat upon each of them and they all began to speak with other tongues as the Holy Ghost gave the utterance. Andrew Newberg has discovered that when you speak in tongues, he's got images to show in his book. When you speak in tongues, the part of your brain that controls your tongue and vocal cords is not operating. It is not your brain controlling your tongue to speak. When you speak his language, it's God taking over your body and using your body to speak the language that he knows has the power to heal and to bring deliverance and change in people's lives. Andrew Newberg also discovered that when you speak in tongues, a part of your brain that's highly active is your sensory perception. It's like every nerve on your skin has been stroked all at the same time. When you start letting him flow through you, God just wraps himself around you from the bottom of your feet to the top of your head to the end of your fingertip. Every nerve on your skin gets caressed all at one time because you're being moved on by the Holy Ghost because God said, I'm going to give you a gift that you can take with you wherever you are and it is the answer to your life. It's the answer to your relationship. It's the answer to everything that happens in your life. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Upper Room Podcast. We hope you were encouraged today. Hey, if you want to stay connected with the church and the podcast, don't forget to visit our social media platforms, Facebook and Instagram, Facebook at Calvary Pentecostal Church, or Instagram at Calvary Ulyss. Or don't forget to visit our website at calvaryulyss.org. That's calvaryulyss.org. Thank you guys so much, and we'll see you Friday on the Upper Room Podcast.